The CarTech Garage, opening the hood for all things automotive. I'm Wesley Adams. And I'm Max Gundrum, and we are the CarTech Guys. History, racing, repair, and all the parts in between. Hit us up on social media at the CarTech Garage. Welcome to the CarTech Garage, everybody. This uh, time we're going to cover this week in automotive history. This is a segment that we've been doing on our Cincinnati-based radio show for quite some time, mm-hmm. and we're just going to keep it rolling, obviously. So do you plan on every week coming out with a little automotive history? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty to go around. Okay, so every week we'll, we'll throw one in there. I mean, you know, maybe condense them every other week. We'll, we'll find out. We'll, yeah, we'll figure this out. Regardless, we're going to deliver some automotive history. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do our best to keep cars interesting. I just hope that you guys are interested. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and kick it off. Sunday, January 23rd, back in 1966. So on this day, Mr. Dan Gurney, you guys have probably heard of him, famous race car driver. He won his fourth consecutive Riverside 500, and he actually set a grand national record. His streak would be broken the following year, but he would win again at Riverside in 1968. Um, so, you know, five in total. And he, he was a wonderful driver. He won races in IndyCar, NASCAR, Can-Am, the Trans-Am series, um, he was actually the first of three drivers to have won races in sports cars, Formula One cars, NASCARs, and Indy cars. So he was number one. Uh, yeah. There, there's only two <laughs> other drivers that have also completed that same feat. Those two are Mario Andretti and Juan Pablo Montoya. Who? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1967, after he won the 24 Hours of Le Mans and his co-driver was A.J. Foyt, he actually started the um, spraying champagne. He just spontaneously really? started spraying champagne on the podium. And he is the first guy that ever did that. And that's what started that entire tradition that now spans... You Even know, outside of all automotive. Over the racing world. <laughs> yeah, so thanks, Dan Gurney, for soaking everybody with champagne, champagne. It's pretty champagne. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, he wasn't just a driver, too. I mean, he, he definitely had a brain on him. Um, you know, he, he, uh, actually was the first guy to put a, uh, a flap on the back of a wing. Have you ever heard of that? A flap on the back? The gurney flap. Wing? Yeah. So it was basically just like a right angle, 90 degree extension on the wing, um, that provided significantly more downforce, but didn't actually come, you know, with the uh, cost of that much additional drag. And if you look at a lot of wings from, you know, the 70s, 80s, and even in, into the 90s, you'll see that they still have that rough gurney flap design. A on lot the, of cars... On the sides are what you're talking about? On the back of the wing. Okay. Yeah, so like you have the back of the wing and it just juts up at the very end. Okay, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, but he was he was the first guy to do that. And of course, now aerodynamics have come a long way. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those simple principles, if you're building an at-home race car and you don't have, you know, wind tunnel testing then you put a gurney flap on it and it gets you better performance. And a lot of people really don't take into account of aerodynamics, you know, at least for a long time, they just try to make it go fast. And finally one day said, Hey, if we make this cut through the air faster, maybe it'll go faster. Slippery. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He was also, um, another fun little fact that I found. Um, he was also the first driver at a Grand Prix ever to use a full face helmet too. Huh. So also kind of an advocate for safety, which I can respect. You know, if you don't live to your next race, you can't win. It. <laughs> you can't win your next race. All right. So we'll go on to the next one. January 24th, 1905. So this is way back. But on this date, it's really interesting. Incredibly, the 
uh, flying mile world record, which was, you know, before they actually had radar guns and everything. So mm-hmm. they would actually do a flying mile and time it. Um, so on this date, it was broken three different times by three different drivers in just 30 minutes. What? So the, yeah, crazy. The initial standing record was 92.3 miles an hour. That was broken by Louis Ross in a steam-powered racer that he called the Wogglebug, which was a really famous car back in the day. Of course, you know, this was over 100 years ago. Um, and that car went 94.73, but five minutes later, that record was broken by a guy driving a Napier 6 named Arthur McDonald. He went 104 miles an hour. And then the uh, final but unofficial world record for the mile uh, went to this guy named H.L. Bowden, who was driving this car called the Flying Dutchman. It was a Mercedes. <laughs> and he went 109 miles an hour. Now, he ended up getting disqualified, and the uh, record went back to the guy in the Napier, Arthur McDonald, because uh, Bowden's car ended up weighing more, I think it was 1,000 kilograms that it was allowed to weigh. So almost nothing? Yeah, not very heavy. But his car weighed more than that, so he was disqualified. But three times in 30 minutes, that's just, that's nuts. That must have been an exciting, exciting day right there. It really would have, you know, and also to see some of the first cars ever to break 100 miles an hour. So that's kind of cool, too. Mm -hmm. All right, taking it forward a little bit. um, January 25th, 1976. Uh, that's 45 years ago. Nicky Lauda won the Brazilian Grand Prix. Now, Lauda's Ferrari. He took the checkered flag 21 seconds ahead of the second place finisher. Um, this was actually one of the other races where James Hunt and Nicky Lauda were kind of duking it out because James Hunt actually took pole position on the race. Um, and he did a two minute, 32 second lap in Interlagos. And I think Interlagos is just under five miles. So for a 76 F1 car, that's still yeah. blazing fast. But Nicky Lauda ended up, uh, you know, coming out on top. He was like a, I mean, I won't say a robot when he drove, but he just drove so intelligently in every single race, like nothing was rash. Everything was premeditated. He didn't take anything, you know, any sort of risk that wasn't certainly going to pay off for him. He was a spectacular driver. He was driver. meticulous about every single movement that he made. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, he truly one of the greatest drivers ever to sit in an F1 car. Mm. No doubt about it. And I wouldn't consider him to be one of the most naturally gifted in terms of outright speed. But the game that he played, the way that he was able to actually take the politics of F1 and make them work in his favor was, was really, really cool. I mean, he's a very, very brilliant guy. All right, taking it uh, back, way, way back this time. January 26th, 1891, 130 years ago, the inventor of the very first internal combustion engine, Nicholas Otto, died at just 58 years old. 58, too young. Young life. Now, um, there had been, you know, engines, combustion engines that had been built before that. You know, back in 1861, there was this guy named Alphonse Rojas, um, he had invented and patented the uh, concept of the four-stroke engine, you know, mm-hmm. suck, squeeze, bang, blow, the intake, compression, ignition, and power strokes. Basically all the modern engines nowadays. Exactly. You know, but his his design actually had that vital compression of the mixture before ignition. But Otto took some of his designs, made it his own, and he was the first one to actually develop a practical running engine, you know, machine that could actually produce power and, and work for somebody. Um, the, the Otto... It, that is such an interesting interesting story. We're going to have to go into it one of these podcasts. The difference between the auto engine and then George Brayton's engine, um, both of those internal combustion engine, and how they kind of changed the landscape of the early automotive industry in the early 1900s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But story for another time. Was the auto, was he Mercedes? 
No, no, not Mercedes. Yeah. Okay, I'm well, thinking of a different yeah, engine. Well, well before that, um, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of people ended up using his designs. Well, I remember seeing some early engine because I went after high school. I took a senior trip and I went to the Mercedes Museum and I got to see. I th- want to say it's late 1800s. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. So I think it, they actually had one of his engines on display. So I got to see exactly you oh, know wow. what it looked like because they basically it's a big spiral in this huge building that goes down in history. It's, it was really <laughs> neat. You would have had like a field day. Yeah, in this left. museum. Oh, you wouldn't have. You would have spent at least three days there, guaranteed. I've <laughs> been like hiding in the rafters and stuff when everybody turns the lights <laughs> Nobody down. Nobody knows I'm here. Yeah, sneaking down on a road. It'd be like Night at the Museum for you. <laughs> <laughs> but car characters. <laughs> uh, I am totally okay with that. I'll be Ben Stiller for a night. Oh. So uh, let's go ahead and move over to the next one. January 27th, 1899, 122 years ago. I know I'm, I'm constantly talking about, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, it, but it's so commonly forgot about so much interesting stuff happened. Everything was so pivotal to what we do nowadays. Um, but on this day, January 27th, 1899, there was a Frenchman named Camille Genazzi. And Camille Genazzi was a really, really cool guy. Um, well, you know, I don't know him personally, obviously, but what he <laughs> created was really, really cool. He won the land speed record at 49.9 miles an hour in a battery-powered automobile that he designed himself. Now, it basically looked, looked like a small torpedo that had a very small driver compartment that you kind of plopped into, but your whole top of the body, basically from the waist up, was hanging out of the car. And it was on this small ladder frame with four wheels, but it was an electric car. And he named it La James Content. It, it means in French, never satisfied. And um, <laughs> the name. coolest part, even though this was the current land speed record, this was before 1900, and he was doing 50 miles an hour in an electric car. You know, in the early 1900s, electric cars were still faster than gasoline cars at the time. And 50 miles an hour back then was like light speed. Yeah, especially comparison. when you're basically sitting on a torpedo with, you know, no helmet, no safety concerns. Yeah, safety wasn't a yeah, thought. Almost no brakes. But um, uh, two years later, in 1901, this very same car would also become the first one to break the 60 mile an hour barrier as well. That's impressive. Yeah, it really so is. A Frenchman named Camille Genazzi was the first guy to get to 60. With a car that's called Never Satisfied yeah. in French. So if you can get to 0 to 60 in 3.9 seconds, this guy did it over 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Step up your game. <laughs> and here's a picture of it right there, Max. If you oh, wow. It yeah. does, in fact, look like a torpedo that somebody just built a little body below it and put four wheels. It looks more like a bullet. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Anyway, look up a picture. All right, so... <laughs> Taking it uh, forward a little bit, January 28th, 1938. This was 83 years ago. Um, Rudolf Caracola. Now, he was a Mercedes driver for many, many years. He, he drove a lot of different cars, but a pretty prominent racer, you know, in, in the 1930s and into the 40s before World War II really started. Um, and on this day, he drove a... Um, a Mercedes W125. Now, this wasn't the 125, you know, race car, so to speak. It was actually called a record wagon. So totally, um, you know, one off just for a speed record. But he drove this car on a public road between the German cities of Frankfurt and Darmstadt. And he set a speed record of 268 miles per hour in 1938. 1938? Yes, almost 270 miles per hour verified. So, and that was in a Mercedes W125. They called it the record wagon. It was a very heavily modified and rebodied W125 Grand Prix racer. Um, now that 260 miles per hour, 268 miles per hour remained until very recently, the record for top speed on a public road. 
because any other speed record that's been tried has been done, you know, in a, in a, a safe location like the salt flats or something like mm-hmm. that. Or of course on a racetrack where a couple people have went close to that and a little bit faster. And those are prime conditions essentially, you but know, still for almost racing. 270 miles. Yeah, that's insane. It's crazy. Now, the uh, the SSC Tutara or Tautara, however the heck you pronounce it, Beautiful of course, car. that one has toppled it, um, or at least allegedly toppled it. You know, with its its three hundred mile an hour run outside of Las Vegas on a public roadway, That's... its most recent one that was verified, um, which was also beating this, but that was actually on a closed course. So it took eighty years, a little over eighty years, to beat that record. Yes. Now, some say this one still technically holds the record, but I, I have confidence that the SSC Tatar, even if it wasn't an actually verified over 300 miles an hour speed, I'm sure it went more than 268. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just it, did. It's fast. Yeah. So that one kind of, you know, stole the crown. But for a car made in 1938 to hold the record for that long, I mean, this was one of the last great monsters from the 1930s, you know, before engine size restriction really came in into play. You know, not many people know this, but race cars in the mid to late 1930s had more power than almost every car in the three decades following. That is insane to think mm-hmm. about because what they just started adding more mandates on on what yeah, size engine and, size and mm-hmm. fuel economy and everything else to, to keep you know a competitive edge or at least to keep everything within a competitive range let's say you know to keep all the engines you know of similar size and similar power ratings um so the standard race trim w125 that was the grand prix racer that had a supercharged straight eight with about 600 horsepower um but the record wagon they installed a huge v12 a v12 in it and there were rumors nobody ever dynoed the car you know but they said it was around the 800 horsepower mark in between 750 and 800 horsepower which is a lot in 1938 it's still in a car that was of pretty similar size Um, you know, but they were monsters. I mean, underdeveloped tires, handling and braking systems, you know, with that massive engine, um, you know, especially considering the speeds that they were capable of, that must've been, you know, crazy. You had to have had some grapefruits on you to drive that thing. You know, you put, you know, 300 horsepower in a car nowadays and it, it's a little scary. Yeah. It's more than enough to get you thrown in jail. (laughs) <laughs> so the, the other thing, 90 minutes after Rudolph set his record, it was time for his um, his rival to make an attempt as well. His name was Bernd Rosenmeier, um, and he drove the Auto Union V16 Streamliner. Now, Auto Union, everybody knows about Auto Union, or at least a lot of you guys that are into automotive history, you know how they, uh, you know, Auto Union, uh, Audi and Horch and DKW mm-hmm. all formed into the Audi group. And that's where the four rings came from and all that stuff. But Auto Union was a huge race car manufacturer as well. Um, but unfortunately, on this day, Rosemeyer lost his life. He was over 200 miles an hour. And in his final attempt, he veered off the road. He was thrown out of the cockpit at over 200 miles an hour and killed instantly. He was only 29 years old. I've got nice. a couple of pictures of these too. The W125 record wagon which looks awesome. Yeah, it almost looks like something out of like a sci-fi movie. It really does like out of the Jetsons. And then um, the auto union V 16 streamliner, which was also a beast. I mean, these, these were both, you know, seven, 800 horsepower cars and with massive engines. Characteristics like Lamborghinis and, and Ferraris do nowadays. I mean, it, it looks very close to that body type. Yeah. And they kind of had like that, that teardrop shape, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was, this was before the whole cam back design, um, you know, when people realize that a cam back design, when you just chop the very end of the car off, it actually makes it more aerodynamic because yeah. it gives you that, that space to have a, um, a low pressure zone, yep. um, as opposed to the air trying to stick all the way down on the teardrop shape. Um, but nonetheless, these cars were capable of incredible speeds, you know, and even that was before world war two and it yeah. took all the way up until now to break that record. 
So let's move ahead a little bit. Um, actually taking it even further back here, January 29th, 1886. Um, this was 135 years ago. This was, this one's really cool too, because Carl Benz was issued the world's first patent for a practical internal combustion engine powered automobile. Um, so this one, uh, and you guys of course probably know it, the, the Benz patent motor wagon is what he called it. Um, but it had tubular framework mounted on, you know, Benz designed one horsepower, single cylinder, one liter engine. It was like 950 some CC, something like that, but it only had three wheels, had like a tiller for the steering, just uh, for the steering, uh, you know, two seat buggy, uh, but nonetheless, it was really, really cool because he actually took Nicholas's Nicholas auto's design from 10 years earlier, refined it and then put it in his motor wagon. So it was, uh, technically the very first car, uh, you know, back in 1886. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless. All right. And then the last one here, uh, January 30th, 1951, 70 years ago, Ferdinand Porsche died in Stuttgart, Germany. Of course, he was a legendary Austrian-German automotive engineer and designer. Um, he died at age 75. So a little brief history of that, you know, back in the early 1800s, he was actually employed by an electric car manufacturer called Lohner. And at uh, 23, he ended up designing his own electric uh, Porsche. They called it the Lohner Porsche. It wasn't really like a race car and it was still in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. So it didn't really matter too much, I guess, but it was, it was pivotal for his life and, you know, what he would go on to create. But the car was exhibited uh, at the time, which was like the, the, biggest uh, automobile collection in Paris in 1900 and Porsche won the opportunity to design another prototype, which was a four wheel drive car with an electric motor in each wheel. Um, but during the next 25 years, he worked for many different companies. Uh, Porsche joined Daimler in Germany in 1923 and 26 uh, Daimler ended up merging with Benz. That's a whole nother story. Um, which of course provided Porsche for, uh, with an opportunity to work on the Mercedes S and SSK projects. Now, those were race cars, mm-hmm. tried and true race cars, and some of the most successful ones of the time. And shortly after that, in 1930, he decided to open up his own engineering office in Stuttgart. And in 1934, of course, um, you know, tensions were rising, of course. The Third Reich was beginning to gain power, and Hitler actually ordered him in 1934 to design and build his first people's car, the Volkswagen, that, that, it, that it, you know, of course, now is known as a Beetle. Um, but Porsche designed the Volkswagen Beetle, and he, in fact, used his design and engineering skills to design many different vehicles for the Nazis during World War II. But, of course, after the war, Porsche spent 20 months, I think, in a French prison, um, of course, for war crimes. Mm-hmm. And people were still pretty mad at him, uh, although he didn't really have a choice. Yeah, no, at that time. But, you know, obviously, with that history being said, you know, he obviously had a lot of opportunities to learn about automotive engineering and, and design even through a, a pretty terrible time. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he designed the Panzer tank. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, he he was he, he was a genius, truly a genius. Um, so while he was in prison, his son Ferry took control of the business, and of course, after his uh, return home, he and his son Ferry began building the first true Porsche car, which became the 356. And of okay. course, you know, the rest is history. Porsche has went on to do many, many great things in yes, racing. They have. Yeah. All right. Well, that's this week in automotive history. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Yeah. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.